from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a new way to track truck pollution, why Ford is bullish on domestic EV manufacturing, and why the market for next-gen materials is growing. It's a material difference this week on 350. It's October 8th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy is off this week, so joining me from not too many miles away in Oakland is Green Biz Associate Editor Jesse Klein. Hey, Jesse. Hi, Joel. We've never gotten together, even though we're only a couple miles apart. <laughs> I know. Well, it's a pandemic world. I know since you moved to Oakland, what, two, three months ago or four months after lost track. Uh, but uh, yeah, we haven't done that we will let's let's do a, a walk around lake Merritt soon yeah absolutely uh, but let's as they say take that offline but you <laughs> are a big hiker you seem to go every weekend somewhere so where, where have you been lately well, the past couple of weekends has been a little bit more uh, celebrating birthday parties and lots of things we couldn't do during the pandemic. But during the week, it's been great to get out to Redwood Regional, which now living in Oakland, I have very easy access to. So that's really fun for me. That's part of the East Bay Regional Parks District and uh, well known to my two dogs as a really good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I actually went there during the middle of the day once and we saw all of the dog walkers and they all knew each other. It was pretty funny. Yeah, as do the dogs. So, well, that's great. But you, you also, as you see, you travel all over California and the West. So where, where have you been, or where are you going? Uh, I went to San Diego last weekend for a friend's birth, 30th birthday, and I was able to kind of sneak out in the morning while everyone was still sleeping their hangovers away and and go surf. So that was great for me. Great. Well, I love your adventurous spirit, so uh, good on you. But you know what? Let's go back and talk for now about the Week in Review. So we're going to take on three stories that, frankly, are kind of long tail stories, but they all have some developments uh, recently. The, uh, these are the kinds of, you know... Overnight sensations where the night began 10 or 20 years ago on uh, advancing next-gen materials and the domestic EV manufacturing and truck pollution. But let's start with materials. This is a piece we published this week by Sue Zoki, our analyst for the circular economy here at GreenBiz Group, on the uh, market for next-gen materials. And as I said, this has been around for a long time, you know, textiles from everything from mushrooms and coffee grounds to to uh, just uh, pretty much any material uh, and certainly recycled and, and, and all of that. But this new generation of materials that's been, again, some around for a long time, are finally starting to come to scale by some pretty big brands. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um you hear about Spiber, the company that's using pre precision fermentation to create a silk alternative. You know, they've got a bunch of, they got almost 300 million in funding. There, you know, this is really a area that just like with food, you know, they're looking into alternatives for a lot of the um, materials that are made out of fossil fuels, whether that's rubber or plastic. And so it's, it's a really interesting and, and exciting new space. And especially if, you know, 
you know, I, we had the Met, the Met Gala a couple weeks ago. And all I could think about when I was reading this article was like, oh, would it be cool if they did like a sustainability Met Gala theme and just to really publicize the, these new materials. And, and while fashion could be kind of like the, the PR hook for these things, it's like, really, can we get it into other things like cars and furniture and, and industrial materials? I mean, the whole idea of precision fermentation, I, you know, don't exactly know what that means, but it sounds pretty interesting. I mean, I know a lot of materials are being uh, grown in, in tanks. Uh, synthetic biology is one, one part of that. And the fact that they're, uh, you know, growing these materials, uh, I think is really interesting. <laughs> but, you know, fermentation, that's how we make beer and bread and all kinds of things. But precision, that's the interesting part. So I... I, I can't uh, tell you much about it. I don't know exactly how it works, but I really want to look into this. And uh, uh, I think it's, it's. Uh, I, I know it has to do with inserting an animal-based protein into a bacteria or yeast, but uh, then it, it, it multiplies in some way. So this is a really interesting area. And, uh, you know, Suze talks about Old Navy, Lul Lulamon, Nike, Patagonia, Crocs, Ralph Lauren are now starting to uh, create products in the market with some of these new materials. Yeah, fermentation has definitely been a really big thing for, for kind of any, like, company trying to create something new that's kind of organic i guess like we i hear a lot about it on the food side of like plant-based material uh, or uh, plant alternatives being created with fermentation it, it definitely seems like we're in a, the midst of a a fermentation boom but and i guess that's kind of moved over to the textiles industry which i hadn't realized until until reading Suze's piece yeah, uh, I'll drink to that uh, fermentation <laughs> boom. Uh, yeah, textile industry pumps uh, up to 3 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. It's about 6 or 7% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So this is uh, non-trivial. And we'll look forward to seeing some of these uh, products uh, <laughs> at a Patagonia store or uh, uh, wherever uh, near you. But let's talk about Ford and EV manufacturing. I mean, I know it's something that you've been tracking, Jesse. Yeah, so this article by the Mist Heather Clancy is why Ford is bullish on domestic EV manufacturing. And it was taken from an interview with Ford CEO Jim Farley. And it talks about how this legacy brand is really jumping into to the EV space and is embracing a new type of product that fits into their sector. Um, the company is planning on building a $11.4 billion uh, plant in Tennessee and Kentucky to build new EV EVs and new EV batteries. And it's a lot about vertical integration for them. They're kind of trying to take control of their destiny in some ways. And their partnership with the Redwood Materials will include a closed loop battery recycling so that they can invest in a circular process and get a lot of that really important material from EV batteries back. And they just want to take control of the entire system from beginning to end. Yeah, I think that the real story here is the domestic manufacturing piece. The fact that Ford, this iconic American brand, is going to be building these cars uh, in America, uh, in Tennessee and Kentucky, as you said, um, that's uh, that's a big deal because you, you know, particularly with the battery technology uh, mostly coming to scale, getting to scale uh, outside of uh, the U.S. and primarily in Asia. 
fact that they can build these here uh, and 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 also build the batteries here is, I think, a really great step in the right direction. $11.4 billion, as you said, that's a, real money, as they say, a hefty investment in American manufacturing. And I love that they're going to create a blue oval city. Of course, blue oval it relates to the iconic Ford logo uh, in Stanton, Tennessee, uh, 3,600 acres, where they'll be bu building the uh, F-150 Lightning, which is basically the first uh, generation of electric F-Series trucks, their best-selling trucks, which, by the way, is sold out for the next year. So this is a very promising um, uh, development. And uh, the fact that uh, Ford announced this, and I love the fact that the CEO, as you said, Jim Farley, his grandfather uh, worked in the, the uh, Rouge uh, complex in Dearborn, Michigan, which is uh, Ford's biggest, I think, uh, had been Ford's biggest assembly plant. And, and now coming full circle and talking about uh, what he's uh, what the company's going to be doing is is a very big deal. But let's let's switch over to another aspect of transportation, which is trucks, um, and uh, not so green yet, uh, not really electric yet, and it's it has a lot to do not just with driving these trucks, but idling at ports. And uh, this is a piece that comes from our friends at the Environmental Defense Fund, Timothy O'Connor, J.B. Fine, and Eileen Nolan, um, writing about uh, some of these developments taking place. Uh, and some of it right here in Oakland, California, and Houston, two large port cities that have uh, major multimodal uh, hubs where uh, things come off ships and go onto trucks or trains and um, lots of, of goods being moved. And, and the question is, how do you do that? The communities around these ports tend to be uh, 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 lower, lower income facility uh, neighborhoods. And uh, a disproportionate amount of the pollution, diesel pollution from these trucks uh, hits the residents there with uh, very high levels of childhood asthma and, and frankly, lower life expectancies. So uh, the, the question is, uh, how do you track this? And uh, what's interesting is is that EDF is uh, is highlighting some new ways to track the pollution, much as they're doing with methane emissions and the satellite that they've launched. That seems to be one of their uh, uh, go-to strategies now is to identify the polluters, uh, name them, uh, press them, shame them if you have to. Uh, and and now uh, that's that's going into the world of trucks. Yeah, I, I didn't know before reading this that you know diesel trucks are only four percent of the vehicles on the road, but they are responsible for over half of the smog forming pollution. Like that's that's a huge amount for just four percent of the vehicles on the road. And the truck industry, you know, it's very segregated. A lot of the places they use shipping services, so it's it's really going to be about managing your supply chain and, and looking downstream and working across sectors, um, which you know. It's a lot harder and it takes a lot more um, collaboration. Yeah. And a lot of these are, are small time. Uh, it's a, a, someone who has one truck or three trucks or five trucks or maybe even 10, but still pretty small businesses. And so they do not have the economies of scale that, uh, that, that say FedEx or Walmart or somebody does who has thousands of vehicles and they can uh, uh, get better prices for, for new, new vehicles or, or, uh, get economies of scale for uh, some some pollution controls and other things. So this is uh, far reaching into the economy, uh, but it's 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 great to see that EDF uh, is leading the charge on on how do we track these and how do we create change in the trucking industry the way we get our stuff. Heather Clancy, Editorial Director for Green Biz. 
In June 2020, consumer electronics company Logitech, which sells everything from video cameras to gaming systems and the ubiquitous computer mouse, announced a plan to add detailed information about carbon emissions to all of its product labels. 15 months later, that label now appears on a handful of products. And the company recently published the methodology for the approach, hoping to inspire similar actions at other consumer products companies. Joining me on GreenBiz 350 to chat more about Logitech's corporate sustainability strategy and the labeling process is Prakash Arunkandam, Head of Global Operations and Sustainability for Logitech. Hey, Prakash. Hi, Heather. Thank you for having me on. Super to have you with us. Start us off with a recap of Logitech's goals. What's the company's position on net zero? Yeah, so thank you for starting there. I think uh, we uh, have been, uh, as a company at Logitech, um, really caring about the environment uh, for a long time. And in 2019, actually, we committed to the Paris Accord, uh, which, as you know, requires the world to be at the 1.5 degree centigrade level or better. And uh, since then, uh, we actually looked at uh, a lot of other things that have happened since then. Uh, and the Paris Accord actually called for net zero by 2050. Uh, we looked at it and we said, you know, we got to do a lot more than that. We actually this year committed to going to net zero, uh, or 20 years mm -hmm. early by 2030, and really trying to be climate positive beyond that to take out uh, really more carbon than we create uh, as, as a company. So that's our goal, and it's a part of the fabric of Logitech, and uh, it's something that we've really uh, embraced uh, as part of our, our DNA. So what factors drove the decision to provide carbon and carbon labeling and who at Logitech was involved in the decision to make this move? Yeah, so it really started out, uh, and I think carbon labeling actually started out in a, in a, in a, in a way in which we, we came into it almost by looking at the design of our product. So over the last, I would say, many years, we've spent effort in actually establishing design for sustainability programs, really understanding the trade-offs in carbon emissions from various business decisions you make on a product feature. Do you put a packaging with smaller packages, bigger packages? What does that cost from a carbon perspective to all the way to the kind of things that we do on our products, mice and keyboards and others? So we really came into it with that background. And um, we were sitting and looking at this saying, what can we do as this little mouse company uh, to really influence uh, and empower consumers with information? And so really started from that place. So we took it upon ourselves to say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you actually walked into a grocery store, which you do today. And the closest example, Heather, I would give is if you walked into a grocery store today and uh, picked up a bag of chips, my favorite chips is potato chips from Miss Vicky's, jalapeno flavor, flip to the back, you'll see 200 calories, and you knew what it meant. And we said, wouldn't it be nice if we did something similar with carbon, where carbon's the new calorie, people understood what it means. They, you inform consumers, the consumers in turn held you accountable, companies like us, Logitech, to really improve our footprint of our products and help drive this industry movement uh, that would actually put uh, numbers in front of people uh, on the kind of footprint we create. So that's really what was behind it. Uh, and we kind of stepped out timidly last year and uh, announced that we would carbon label all our products. And uh, we did that because we had the backbone of this life cycle analysis capability, which is you know something that goes along with uh, the reduction efforts we've done. 
um, and really empowering consumers to have this information at their hands uh, and, and drive this movement forward. Got it. How confident are you that people, I mean, do you, you, do you explain what this is to them in some way? Because I would imagine that some of your community, like the gaming community, younger folks would have sort of this, in, this need and, and interest in this sort of in, naturally. But how do you explain what this is to people? Yeah, we have a lot of work left to do, to be clear. Um, I think, uh, as you referenced, some of the younger community, the game gamers, uh, we started with gaming primarily because uh, a lot of gamers already understand uh, a lot of these things from an environment perspective. Some of our uh, core products that actually sell like mice and keyboards and headsets and webcams also address creators and streamers, and they get some of this. Uh, but we have work to do to actually explain this. So if you think back to... Uh, 1968 or 1970 or whatever it was when the FDA said calories as a thing, you know, it took a few years before it really became a thing. So we have work cut out to actually explain this. I would say the biggest thing we're seeing is consumer awareness around the transparency, right? So if you take one of our gaming products and actually look at the carbon label, it's going to say, here's the amount of carbon you have on that product. It's going to inform you just like it's going to inform you when you go out to the grocery store and buy uh, something, it's going to inform you on, on the kind of calories you consume. And I use that as an elusive similarity and analogy because it is not in itself going to fully explain what is better, but it's going to give you a good marker for what consumption you're driving and therefore influence how you think about it. Um, we are in the early stages, I think, of where this could go. Uh, it is definitely a key part of us being able to, as a society, influencing greenhouse gas emissions and really understanding the kind of consumption we drive. Um, but we're seeing some exciting uh, sort of consumer feedback thus far. Right. So you did. You are going to do this across the entire portfolio. You did start with, I think, some of the gaming products first. That's right. So we have uh, gaming products that are already in the shelves in many retailers uh, worldwide. Uh, with the carbon labels, and we have many more coming. So what we uh, formally uh, said we would do is by 2025, all of our products, which we have a large portfolio of products, would have carbon labels. We started with gaming, as you referenced earlier, because they are the most passionate consumers. They kind of understand some of this. They follow us much closer. And then we're going to do some of these other products as, uh, as time goes on. And it takes effort to kind of look at what is involved uh, in creating some of these uh, when you carbon label a mice versus your carbon label a headset. It's a completely different thing. Uh, it's a different product, a different composition of carbon. Um, so there is a bit of effort involved as well in actually coming to the right numbers. Uh, but we're starting with gaming. So seven, seven products are already on shelves um, as of uh, spring this year, more coming the rest of this year, and then more next year and so on. And uh, we hope to, my sustainability team is a, uh, on a mission to try and get there sooner than 2025, but we we are planning for a 2025 complete date. You're using an internally developed life cycle assessment to do this. Why not use one of the existing certifications or labels? Yeah, so so actually we have, uh, I would say our labeling uh, is based on what is called a life cycle assessment approach. So what that is, is it's looking at sourcing of our products or raw materials and things that go into our product manufacturing, uh, distribution, when, it take, when you're actually shipping it from one location to the other, 
your use when you're plugged in and actually using our mice and keyboard and headsets, it's drawing power, that, and in the flight. So we're taking all these five things, sourcing, manufacturing, distribution, consumer use, all the way to end of life, in this methodology called the life cycle analysis methodology. That is actually a standard, right? So there is actually an ISO standard for it. It's called 14,067. And there's 14,026, you know, to get very technical on this. So those standards we have adopted in how we measure the carbon. And then what we have done is actually built the capability to quickly analyze for our footprint, for our products, how to compute these numbers. So that's the internal bit of know-how we built. And using that, and then we essentially work with uh, a certification body externally. It's called DECRA. So there's the same guys that do automotive standards. And uh, using that, we essentially get validation. So it's not just numbers that Logitech comes up with, it's externally validated. So in some respects, it's an internally developed process, but using an external standard, an ISO standard, uh, and validated externally so that the numbers actually stand the test of time. And which is also why it takes a little longer than a simple calculator where you can throw a bunch of numbers and you know, get a We've tried to make sure that we are clearly supporting the integrity of these internal calculations on our products, our components, our footprint, our consumer use, and actually factored that into the uh, full calculation. Yeah, you have the the word uh, operations in your title. Yeah. So where does this fit like in a product release timeline? Do you have to add sort of this process loop where you're doing this part of it? Um, Doing working the certification into the timeline, and you know, like, have you made have you had to ch make changes to the process as a result? Yes. So this is an ongoing discussion, Heather. It's a, so I'm so glad you asked this question because a very uh, very involved process, as you said. Like, you know, if you take a look at the seven or eight products, they've been already in production for a while. We kind of know where we're making them. We know also what consumers are doing with them and how they're using it. And this is at the heart of why we we gave ourselves till 2025 uh, to actually work out exactly how we would do this on a product that's going to get to launch next year. We're still trying to make all the tweaks that we can to get the product right at the same time doing these calculations on the side. So what we do today, just to, you know, just to give you, and because operations is also part of my, my role at Logitech, uh, we are actually super integrated between how we work with our suppliers, our own factories, our design teams, our engineering teams, and ultimate consumers who are testing our product before they get launched. Um, we're, we're actually integrating that into the sustainability process. So we have today what we call a DFS, Design for Sustainability process, that's built into our product development process. So every product uh, that come, goes through the product development process essentially looks at cost, of course, schedule, uh, customer experience, but now starting two years ago, it started looking at sustainability attributes. What of this product is actually going to be better from a carbon perspective, better from an environment perspective, um, and actually putting that into every one of our product development processes. So, so that's something that we've been doing across all the major business units that Logitech has. And uh, as we get better at this, you know, we'll get our calculations better and so that we can actually turn them faster. And that's really the goal of how we're looking at it. Um, but it's a, thank you for asking this question because it takes quite a bit of effort to get, as you can imagine, uh, an end-to-end -end global supply chain to actually turn around and produce numbers that you can actually test and mm -hmm. validate quickly. Mm 
and and uh, it's notable also that you're sharing this methodology with That's other right. companies. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so what pro- actually, I want to ask you, what prompted that decision, right? So, what and what could you learn? Yeah, there's many reasons there. So, so the first one is when we came out first and we said we want to do this. Um, look, we we are we realized that the, for this thing to work, carbon labeling to work, you know, a lot of companies need to do something so that you, when you go out and buy uh, a product, you can compare and contrast, just like you compare and contrast performance. When you buy a headset, you're looking for a certain amount of audio volume or performance on audio quality. You want to be able to do the same thing from a sustainability perspective, and which is why we are kind of trying to make sure that you have this reference point that you can utilize. So, which is one of the reasons. The second reason is I think um, uh, we think everybody should kind of get to this place because it would inform consumers, right? It would inform consumers, but it also inform design processes in other companies, not just at Logitech, which would ultimately result in better environmental impact in the electronic segment. Um, and then the third one is um, we have products that we make uh, and then there are others that make other products and there is a lot of commonality. So if you think about a plastic part that might be used in a cable set up TV box or a TV or a computer or a computer peripheral like ours, you know, ultimately they share the same supply chain at some point. And there are things that we can learn from each other. And so these are the three reasons why we are sharing this methodology, partly to inform consumers, move the industry forward, and uh, uh, and also selfishly to learn more ourselves on how we could get better at this. Uh, so that's really when behind our decision on being able to share this, not just with peers, uh, with also competitors of ours. Um, so this is something that we're actively engaging with others on. What final advice would you have for another consumer electronics or consumer peripherals, con- you know, computer peripherals company that's thinking about carbon labeling? Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, it's not easy. It, we got here because uh, there's a bunch of work we've done. But here's, here's what I'd say. If a small mouse company, Logitech, and we do a lot more than mice, but, you know, that's what many people can know as us. If we can do it, I think anyone else can do it. Uh, we have the know-how. We're willing to offer it to anyone who wants it. Uh, we, we're happy to share that. Uh, you can contact me and my team at any point. We're, we're kind of trying to you know, figure out the best way to get this level of information shared. And once you have this capability around carbon labeling, you can really impact, I think, the environmental impact of the products that you create. And many of the design decisions and many products, I mean, we just released G435, which is a gaming headset last week, uh, 40% less carbon than the predecessor. And the only reason we could do that is because we now understand all the trade-offs. So I would say if we can do it, I think so can a lot of other companies. Uh, it's, it's not easy, but it's not super hard either. Just take some determination and uh, having the right know-how, which we're happy to offer. Great. Well, thank you for joining us on GreenBiz 350. Thank you, Heather. You just heard from Prakash Arunkandram, Head of Global Operations and Sustainability for Logitech. For GreenBiz 350, I'm Heather Clancy. Last month, the research organization Project Drawdown published a report titled Climate Solutions at Work, 
Unleashing Your Employee Power. It aims to help employees apply their skills and expertise to the climate crisis while holding their company accountable for sweeping climate action. Jamie Beck-Alexander, who spearheaded the project in her role as director of Drawdown Labs, joins me now to talk about this guidebook. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Joel. Great to be with you. First of all, give us a little backstory. In several ways, this publication seems kind of a departure from the kinds of research and reports we've seen so far from Project Drawdown. What's the story behind it? It's a great question. Um, well, you know, similar to the way Project Drawdown back when the book was published in 2017, our team scoured, you know, called kind of humanity's wisdom to look at what are the biggest solutions to the climate crisis. Um, so in my work now is leading Drawdown Labs, which is the, the part of the organization where we work with companies primarily. We wanted to embark in a, on a similar effort to say, Okay, we know that companies are responsible for their emissions. That's one that's one piece of things. But that's not the that's not the full story. That's not the only lever of influence that they have. There's a whole lot of other things that companies can do um, to either, you know, positively influence you know, climate solutions or be complicit in the status quo. And so we really wanted to put out there, similar to the way we did with the drawdown solutions, to put out there like, okay, here are the big things that we see the, the big ways that companies can influence climate action. Um, so we see this as kind of the next, the next logical step as we get deeper into different audience segments. The report's really broad and, and deep. Uh, it covers everything from carbon offsets to climate competent boards to pushing banks and asset managers to align their investment portfolios with science-based targets. A lot of that feels kind of a heavy lift for, for most employees. So who inside companies do you see as the primary audience for this? Yeah. So, I mean, really the inspiration for this piece, for me, for me personally, at least, was the, the Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, who, as you, you know, you covered, Joel, it back in several years ago now, um, you know, came together several employees from across the company and said, you know, our company just isn't, isn't doing enough. And they gathered together, they, you know, came up with a list of asks or demands. Um, and I worked with them a bit at that time to help them come up with what that list of asks are, because at that time, like, we didn't know, nobody was talking about all of these other levers that companies have, like their investments, their financed emissions, you know, the 401ks they provide to their employees, their policy advocacy, their lobbying practices. And so, you know, I, I think that there is, uh, and, and, you know, the Amazon employees had a lot of success in raising this issue at Amazon. So I think there is a, a, an appetite across, the, across employees to understand what true climate leadership needs to look like by their company so they can, A, better assess how their company is doing, are they actually leading, and B, begin to say, oh, I thought only sustainability teams could work on, you know, this emissions problem. But I actually see that, you know, I work in, I work on our policy team and I actually see that now policy is, you know, has, has a role to play. So maybe I can like raise my hand to our head of, you know, government affairs and say that I want to help with this, you know, with identifying climate policies that need support. So I think our goal wasn't to necessarily connect every dot to individual roles, but more to say, this is a much bigger and ex more expansive conversation than the way I think we're currently treating it. 
yeah, you mentioned uh, in the book, uh, the guidebook, that every job needs to be a climate job. I may have gotten the quote a little bit off, but but that's a, a really really interesting point. What do you think companies can do to help make that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, I think Joel, you know better than anyone how under-resourced sustainability teams are, both in terms of their human resources, their headcounts, their budgets, um, and so. And I think you know when we started Drawdown Labs and we named sort of the companies that we were going to be working with, I heard from a lot of employees. So like people who are in marketing teams or, you know, coders or product design teams saying like, oh, that's awesome that my company is working with Drawdown Labs. How can I be a part of this? Because I've like, I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out my, my inroad or how I can contribute to the sustainability team's job and, or the sustainability team's um, goals. And I think, I think we're really trying, you know, we're really trying to say the sustainability team has a huge mandate, right? They're doing something that has never in history been done before for which there is no guidebook or precedent um, or like list of things to do. They're inventing this on the fly in a matter of years. Um, and so we want to try to help like equip more people to be able to, to find the way, you know, their inroad to, to this issue. Yeah, we see the need uh, for employees to get involved in policy, which is one of the sections that you have, uh, policy and advocacy. Um, what are you seeing there in terms of how companies are, are, are either engaging their employees or more, more to the point, employees are engaging their companies? Yeah, I think this is an issue where you're, we're seeing a lot of um, the inside slash outside strategy at play. Where you know in your in your write up um, this week, Joel, you you referenced Climate Voice, um, another organization that that you've that you've highlighted that's that's playing you know the outside game and really trying to get have employees like sign petitions and ask their companies to take a bolder stance on climate policy. Um, so we we sort of balance that. We work deeply inside companies within Drawdown Labs. So we work closely with the CSO um, and help them make the business case for supporting climate policy. But we also recognize that, you know, that the outside game is is just as important and for their recruitment and retention um, of their employee base. So that's a critical, you know, stakeholder for, for every company. So you're a science-based organization and it's uh, it's a lot about metrics and and, and and really leaning into facts and and all that good stuff. What are your metrics for this book? How do you know it'll be successful when you look back in uh, I don't know a year or six months or what what do you hope to see happen as a result of this guidebook? Great question. Um, well, I think you know we're we're really trying to get it into the hands of employees and that you know that's target, you know, getting, getting in touch with green teams inside companies, Slack groups, you know, like climate action tech or climate change makers that are working with individuals um, to help change, you know, change the system. Um, so I think in a year's time from now, if we could see this, so, so the, the, the guide outlines eight areas that where, you know, that, that companies need to be leading on in order to be considered, you know, what we call a drawdown aligned company. And so I would love to see in a year from now, if that, you know, if, if that list of eight actions, eight leverage points is, is actually used as a barometer for, you know, for a company's climate chops. Um, that's what I would love to see. And for employees to be leading the charge uh, on, on asking their employer how they're standing up to that, to that standard. 
Well, as I said in my write-up, we need every trick in the book right now, and this book will, our booklet, our guidebook will will help a lot. Uh, so thank you for doing that. Jamie Beck Alexander is director of Drawdown Labs. The new publication is called Climate Solutions at Work, Unleashing Your Employee Power. You can download it at drawdown.org. Thanks so much, Jamie. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters, a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. You can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to Jesse Klein for sitting in this week. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 